You're tuning in to the Black Hollywood Live Network, featuring news, interviews, and commentary on all things Black Hollywood. Hollywood redefined. From Los Angeles, California, presented by Maria Menounos and streaming live thanks to Akamai Technologies. This is Black Hollywood Live. Justice is served. Featuring the week's roundup and commentary on legal news. Black Hollywood Live. Hollywood redefined. You're listening to Black Hollywood Live. And now, the host for Black Hollywood Live, Justice is served. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Justice is Served. This is the show where we give you all of the latest in legal news. I'm your host, Mari Fagel, joined by my co-host, criminal defense attorney, Sarah Zari. Hi, Mari. Hi, Sarah. We have a lot to talk about this week. Uh, we're going to be talking about the latest in Ferguson, the Boston bomber trial updates there, uh, the latest at Venice High School, where several of the students have been arrested um, and charged with rape, uh, the latest with the NYPD and Eric Garner. There is a lot to talk about, but I want to start about the case of the week, which is the case that everyone, I mean, not just lawyers, not just Hollywood, everyone is talking about Mr. Robert Durst, a.k.a. the Jinx. So Robert Durst, uh, for those who don't know him, he is the subject of a six-part documentary series called The Jinx on HBO. He uh, is alleged to have killed up to, and maybe even more than, three people, starting with his wife, Kathy Durst, then his friend, Susan Berman, in Los Angeles, and then his neighbor, Morris Black, in Texas, which is why the title of the show is called The Jinx. How does someone's wife, someone's friend, and someone's neighbor all die, and you happen to have nothing to do with any of it? Or do you, is the question. So, Sarah, I want to get all our viewers up to speed on what's been going on with the latest and get your opinion. Basically, the show aired... There were two key pieces of evidence, in my mind, that the show and the documentarians exposed. And then, coincidental or not, the timing, the finale aired Sunday night. He was arrested Saturday in New Orleans by um, FBI. He should be transported after being in Louisiana back to Los Angeles Mm -hmm. to stand murder charges for the 2000 death of his friend, Susan Berman. Uh, So first, I want to get your take on one big piece of evidence in my mind that came out of the show. The finale ended with his statements. Mm -hmm. The documentarian did lengthy interviews with this man about his life, about these three deaths, and uh, they caught him I think, uh, with one big piece of evidence that we'll talk about later, his handwriting. Mm -hmm. And he ends the interview. The interview's over. He goes to the bathroom. He still has his mic on. The mic is still recording. And he says to himself, there it is. You're caught. Then he says, what the hell did I do? Killed them all, of course. And that's how the show ends. Mm -hmm. Reading those lines and knowing that show ends like that, just it fades to black after that, what a dramatic conclusion for entertainment, but this is reality. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, well, Mari, I think uh, back to what you said about the two pieces of the key evidence, I think that's exactly what happened. And there was no, I don't think it's a coincidence, the timing of this. I think that the LAPD and the FBI knew that if this thing aired, he would be out of here. There's already rumors that he was on his way to Cuba uh, from from Houston or from Louisiana. In any event, with respect to the mutterings, you know, everyone's calling it the bathroom confessions. To me, it's not a confession. It's, it's, um, it's this... Rather eccentric, um, little crazy, seventy-one-year-old uh, scion of this dynasty in New York, this real estate dynasty, um, who is in the bathroom. And if I was his defense attorney, I would say he did know the mic was on. He didn't take it off. I mean, there's no coincidence that I mean, he, he he didn't mess up and think the mic was off and start mumbling to himself. This is so explainable by the defense. I think that um, one of the things that first came to my mind is perhaps he had a right of privacy in the bathroom, but he doesn't because he's not being recorded by uh, the government. He's being recorded by a, a crew, the HBO crew and the filmmakers. The filmmakers whom he agreed to do an interview with, so he waived any right to he privacy. He agreed, but he sought them out to do this interview, uh, or this documentary. He wanted to talk about his story himself. And so, you know, if I was a defense on the defense team um, for Durst, I would say he knew the mic was on. He was rambling on. It was sort of this crazy thing he was saying in the mirror, perhaps it was the finale to this movie about his life. It was fiction in his head. I mean, the prosecutors are going to try to make this as though it's a stream of consciousness um, type of um, um, utterance, but there's a lot of issues with it, and, and, and I don't see a judge letting this evidence in because it's highly prejudicial. He says, I killed them all. All who? Okay, he's on trial for the death of Susan Berman. Let's not forget that. He's not on trial for the Texas thing because he was actually acquitted. That was pretty amazing. Um, and he's not on trial for the disappearance of his wife. So that is highly prejudicial. It's more prejudicial than probative. And under evidentiary rules, it will be kept out. The other thing, Mari, too, I think, with respect to the bathroom confessions, is that, you know, if, 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 if in fact the defense is able to show that these filmmakers were acting as the the extended arm of the police that in fact the um, interviews were interrogation, okay, then I think not only the bathroom utterances will be thrown out, but most of the content of, of what he says in these interviews will be thrown out. I mean, that's a much harder, um, I think, argument for them to succeed at. But, uh, but you know, the, 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 there's a question about when these filmmakers started cooperating with the police. Um, that, to me, is really interesting. They're saying they stopped uh, the interviews in 2012. They started working with the LAPD in 2013 because they felt morally compelled to bring this man to justice. Um, and, and as a defense attorney, I would want to look into that, right? And and really know when did they team up with the LAPD? Because they are filmmakers. They're not cops, you know, and that's going to be a big issue, um, I think, in his defense. Sarah, you bring up several good points. I want to break down what you said about the confession and its admissibility. I think there are three hurdles here. Mm-hmm. First, whether the confession is admissible. And you talked about, I think that uh, the prosecutors are going to say that he waived any right to privacy. He agreed to sign on to this documentary. Thus, it's in. 
even if the defense were to say, oh, they were somehow arms of law enforcement, mm-hmm. then it's just like an undercover informant. When someone speaks to an undercover informant, that statement comes in because it's from the mind of the defendant. If the defendant thinks he's speaking to someone who's not a cop, then he doesn't feel coerced. It's his free will. He's speaking of his own free will to someone, which is why an undercover informant does not need to read Miranda warnings to someone mm-hmm. before they speak to them. So if they do try to argue they're an arm of law enforcement, I still think it comes in. So that's the first hurdle. I think it will be admissible. The mm-hmm. second hurdle, how much of the statement will be admissible? Like you alluded to, he said, I killed them all. All is three people. Kathy Durst, Susan Berman, and Morris Black. Or more. <laughs> and or more. Right. So I do think that they will have a hard time getting in the I killed them all part, even if, you know, the part of uh, there it is, you're caught, that could come in, but the I killed them all, they may have to strike that because all does allude to more than one person. But the prosecutors will argue, even if Morris Black, you can't talk about that, it is prejudicial, mm-hmm. he was acquitted. Um, the problem with it is when you bring in an uncharged crime, the jury will think, oh, well, if he killed Morris Black, then he's more likely to kill Susan Berman. Right. That's out. But that's why the DA charged him with a special circumstance of a witness killing. Susan Berman was a witness to Kathy Durst's Mm -hmm. disappearance and death. So Kathy Durst and all of the evidence about his first wife's disappearance will all come in because it is all relevant to the fact and the motive of why he killed Susan Berman. He killed Susan Berman because Janine Pirro at the Westchester DA's office opened up this investigation in 2000, after two decades of this woman missing, and she wanted to speak to Susan Berman. And right before she was to speak to Susan Berman, Susan Berman is killed. Uh-huh. So everything about Kathy Durst comes in. But- the third hurdle, I think, in my mind is, like you said, one, find the confessions admissible. Mm-hmm. Two, some of it, all of it is admissible. The third hurdle is how are they going to spin this to a jury? Mm-hmm. Was it the random utterances of a madman or was it a confession? And I mm-hmm. think you hit the nail on the head when you said the defense can try to spin this any way they want. He was asking himself a question after he did this interview. He's talking to himself. Mm-hmm. He could be, you know, he could be role-playing. He could exactly. be, uh, he could, it could be his Asperger's syndrome. It could be that he's mentally ill because he actually is right now in a jail facility for mentally ill because he's alleged to be suicidal mm-hmm. right now. So I think there are a lot of problems with the confession. There is, and I think, and I think that the, the, this this particular defense team, or at least led by um, Dick DeGaren, who's who's just top, um, you know, I think it's not going to be hard at all to explain these utterances. And aside from the evidentiary hurdles that you discussed, Mari, I think the other issue here is, is that a confession normally is in the context of a dialogue. It is not a monologue. It is not something that you're just blurting out in the mirror in the bathroom. You know, it is something that you, there's questions asked of you and it triggers this confession, this admission. So I think that it's just so different from what a confession classically is, uh, looks like, you know, and, 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 um, so I, I honestly, I don't think this is going to be the bad stuff out of this, uh, docuseries for Durst. So what will be the bad stuff out of this docuseries for Durst, Phil, if you could put on the screen, um, what I think in my mind was the key evidence to come out of this documentary. Right here is a letter that Robert Durst sent to Susan Berman, and it's not seen in the image, but his return address of his office with his name is right there. What does he spell wrong? Beverly, in Beverly Hills. He sends this envelope with a note inside that says, Susie, some, now, and, now and again I think of our good, mam- good memories together. Good luck, 
Bobby. He uh, likely sent a check to her because he was giving her money, which is going to become a big issue, Mm -hmm. and he sent her this letter. When they show him this letter and this envelope, he says to them, I wrote that. That's me. I wrote that. That's my address. That's my writing. I wrote that. Phil, will you go to the next one, please? Um, Okay, so the big question is, then after Susan Berman's death, someone sends a note to Beverly Hills Police, and inside it says, Cadaver. 1527 Benedict Canyon. It's telling police that you're going to find a dead body at Susan Berman's address. And, um, you know, police had this letter from the beginning of the investigation. I think it was the LAPD. The LAPD yeah. had this letter from the beginning of the investigation. All they had was the one wrong, you know, wrongly spelled envelope that said mm-hmm. Beverly Hills Police with an extra E where there shouldn't be one. Then, in the course of doing this documentary, um, the documentarian, Andrew Jarecki, uh, ends up interviewing Susan Berman's uh, stepson. She had dated this man for a while. She became very close to his son and daughter and she basically adopted them and raised them. That son held onto her property all these years since her death. He was going through her stuff and her property. He found that envelope and that letter that Robert Durst had sent to Susan Berman. So he, Andrew Drecki, corners Robert Durst, and he says, you wrote one of these? Yes, but you didn't write the other one of these. No. Can you tell me which one you wrote mm-hmm. and which one you didn't side by side? And he says, no. Right after that, the interview ends. Right after that, he says, there it is. You're caught. Because he mm-hmm. knows that this handwriting proves that the killer who wrote the letter to Beverly Hills Police is the same man as Robert Durst, who wrote the letter to Susan Berman. So uh, in my mind, that's when I say, when you were talking about how it, it, are these documentarians, are these cops, are these investigators, are these entertainers? The line is blurred, um, but I think this handwriting will be very detrimental to the defense. As a defense attorney, how would you spin it? No, I, I unfortunately I have to agree with you because um, not only the filmmakers have utilized a handwriting expert, but I think that the um, that law enforcement has also had this examined forens- forensically, and this is all going to come in to the trial against Durst. Um, the problem is, is I don't know if um, our viewers can recall the uh, Michael Jackson trial in Santa Barbara for child molestation charges, and in that case, the prosecution relied heavily on information that came out of um, Bashir's uh, film about Michael Jackson, or documentary about Michael Jackson, and as a result, the defense, Tom Mesereau, was able to bring in all the um, things that were not in the film, the the unaired, the unedited um, material that was favorable to Michael Jackson. So I think the prosecutors here have to be a little bit careful about how heavily they rely on what his is solely coming out of the film and they have to be able to show that they had independent access to this evidence. I mean, I think it's really embarrassing for the LAPD on a a 15-year case. um, They've had every opportunity to investigate. Reach out to that stepson. Just like the filmmakers did. You know, I think somebody here said, I think it was the prosecutor um, from Westchester County who had investigated uh, Durst's wife's disappearance, who said, these filmmakers did uh, what 30 uh, with with Cops in three states could not do in 30 years, and I think there's truth to that. Um, and so I do think this is a horrible piece of evidence for Durst. Out of these two key um, sort of nuggets that came out of the docuseries, uh, while I don't think that the bathroom confessions are admissible ultimately for one reason or another, I do think that this is more likely than not to be admitted and is problematic. So. 
Here's what I think the prosecution and the defense are going to do with that handwriting sample. The prosecution, um, led by DA John Lewin, uh, will make a huge deal of this handwriting. John Lewin at the DA's office, his specialty is handling these highly circumstantial cold cases. He is one of the mm-hmm. highest budgets of any DA in L.A. County because he gets these cases that really rely and come down to experts. I watched a trial he did this summer where he was able to get a conviction in a 30-year-old cold Mm -hmm. case of an Orange County businessman who murdered his girlfriend who was a nurse at the time in 1979. And um, there were only two pieces of evidence, just like here, just two pieces Mm -hmm. of evidence. There were really only two major pieces of evidence that tied that man to that death. One, his alibi was that he was out sailing that night. Two, the murder weapon was um, a piece of wire that he strangled the woman with. Mm -hmm. The piece of wire was the same piece of wire that was hanging in his mother's art studio. What did John Lewin do? He brought in every expert he could find on this piece of wire. What did he do with the alibi? He brought in every sailing expert, every weather expert to prove that it was impossible for that man to sail that type of boat on that night, at that time, in that weather. And he won that case. And that is exactly what we will see here. He will bring in handwriting experts to say that the man who wrote the letter to the um, police is the same man who wrote the letter to Susan Berman, Robert Durst. Um, I mean, didn't the handwriting expert on the jinx actually say that the ticks on these block lettering are unique to one person and one person only? I mean, yes, that's a uh, the, the expert in the film, but, you know, I'm sure he's not too far off from... I think the worst thing was how shaken up um, Durst appears when he's confronted with this. He doesn't expect this. and He actually uh, burps. <laughs> yeah. So, um... <laughs> <laughs> well, here's where I think the defense is going to handle the handwriting. I think they're going to do two things. One, the LA Times just came out with a story that said um, the search warrant for Robert Durst's mm-hmm. home was revealed. And it says in the search warrant that actually uh, one of the handwriting experts the LAPD um, had hired originally said that it was Susan Berman's manager who wrote the letter. Then they had another expert test it. And the other expert said it was Robert Durst and ruled out the manager. That is going to be something the defense will emphasize. They're going to mm-hmm. say... One of LAPD's own handwriting experts in 2002 said this wasn't Robert uh-huh. Durst. And um, they're going to say that handwriting and handwriting experts is unreliable. It's not scientific. And they're going to make a big deal of it. And like you said, they're also going to make a big deal of how this letter and this envelope came into the DA's possession in the first place. It was a documentarian who found this evidence. It was sitting in this stepson's box of his um, stepmom's property for all these years. He handed it to the documentarian. In the show, Andrew Jarecki, he shows that he um, puts it in a plastic baggie and then he keeps it in a safety deposit box. And then he does not tell the LAPD about what he found because Mm -hmm. first he wants to confront Durst with it because he thinks otherwise he'd have to go through, quote unquote, 800 levels of discovery. Mm -hmm. Then he confronts Robert Durst with it. So he waits to give it to police until after he had confronted Durst himself with it. And I think the defense is going to make a very big deal of blurring the line between investigator and entertainer and they're going to say that this evidence is unreliable and they should not give it weight because you can't establish a chain of custody Custody. it's not like you know 
a gun that a cop finds and seizes and then he puts it in an evidence locker and then he signs it out and he signs it in and you can follow the exact chain of custody of how that gun got from the crime scene to the courtroom. That's going to be really hard to establish a chain of custody for this envelope. So I think that there's, with both of these pieces of evidence, mm-hmm. Sarah, the um, envelope and, and the, the confession, mm-hmm. I think that the defense will be able to score points. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Well... What else on Durst? Uh, Well, Durst, we will be following this very closely. I do think, I just want to end with something finally, and I want to get your your take on this. One, uh, I think that Andrew Jarecki and the HBO team will be called as witnesses. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think they are going to be crushed by the defense. Yeah, absolutely. I think they, um, I mean... I understand the moral obligation to to bring him to justice. I understand the obligation they felt they had to the families of the dead, um, and I suppose the uh, Susan Berman's family. But um, there is a, a, absolutely a blurred line here. Uh, they are filmmakers, and and it, despite the release that he signed, despite the fact that he approached them and wanted to do this, uh, I think that they did in many ways cross the lines into um, acting as interrogators. Uh, which is the job of the police. It's not the job of of uh, filmmakers. So it'll be interesting to see what happens at this trial. Of course, um, he's awaiting extradition in Texas. I'm, I'm sorry, New Orleans, because he's charged also, as though this is not bad enough, he's charged with <laughs> um, possession of a firearm, felon in possession of a firearm, with some marijuana that was found in his hotel room. And, of course, uh, Louisiana prosecutors also want a piece of him. So there are charges filed there, and so his attorney's trying to push his extradition They've waived the, um, you know, they've waived contesting extradition. So he should be in Los Angeles shortly, and we're going to follow um, on this story and, and report back to our viewers. So I just want to add one last thing because this is, this is just such a crazy topic, uh, and I know we're taking up more time talking about this, yeah, but this, this is, is just such it. a crazy case. Um, two problems in my mind mm-hmm. with HBO. One is. Um, in the final episode, and I'm sorry to give away any spoilers, but in the final episode, uh, after they find the letter, they want to confront Robert Durst with this letter and mm-hmm. say, did you write this letter and did you write the cadaver letter? And Robert Durst is hesitant to do an interview with them, a second interview with them, and he keeps pushing back the date. He says he's out of town. He says he can't do it. And then finally, Andrew Jarecki gets leverage because Robert Durst then is brought into the New York DA's office for violating a restraining order that his brother took out against him where he's not allowed to be on or around his brother's property. Mm-hmm. Andrew Jarecki had footage of him around his brother's property. So Robert Durst's lawyers call him and they say, we need that footage. There's the leverage. Jarecki says, okay, I'll give you the footage. Implicit in that is, I'll give you the footage if you make Robert Durst available for a second interview. Mm-hmm. He gives the footage. Robert Durst comes in for a second interview. I think the defense is going to make a big Absolutely. deal of that. That that is tantamount to coercion. Yes. And second, you know, you talked about this whole idea of they were worried that he was going to flee and he might have fled to mm-hmm. Cuba. The the reason why he was in New Orleans is this big handwriting, this big um, reveal of the letter came out last Sunday at the end of episode five. Really, the mm-hmm. first, first four episodes is nothing new. It's going over the history of these three deaths. At the end of episode five, they find this letter. At that point, Robert Durst flees and leaves to New Orleans because he knows, oh shit, I know where this is going. I'm going to flee. So the fact that HBO sat on this for so long and developed it the way they did and he wasn't arrested for so long, he very well could have left the country right after that interview. Right. He could have left the country right after this season premiered. He could have left the country right after episode five. They were playing with fire and right. they are lucky that he didn't move, he didn't flee to 
some remote country where they could never find him. Mm-hmm. We are lucky that we caught him. Right. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's not like he didn't know, even before episode five, that something this big would eventually come to light on on HBO. I mean, it would be aired. So, um, yeah, he is caught. He will be here, and he will be prosecuted by John Lewin, which is not good. Something we'll have to watch. Right, exactly. All right, so on the docket, uh, we have several um, cases to report back to our viewers. Um, the New York Police Department is editing the Wikipedia pages of Eric Garner, uh, Sean Bell, and a variety of other civil rights um, victims, victims of civil rights violations by the New York City Police Department. And this is absolutely disgusting to me because what they're doing, and for those of you who don't know, um, Wikipedia is a platform online that you can go to and post. Anyone can contribute to it. Anyone can edit anybody else's page. Um, But the information is supposed to be neutral. It's supposed to be verifiable facts, not opinions, not your side of the story, but verifiable facts. And what infuriates me the most is the edits here on Eric Garner's uh, page are two things. One, that they've removed the word chokehold as his cause of death, and they put um, respiratory distress, okay? And they've added that, um, basically they added that, uh, that, that his, his, um, the Garner, who was considerably larger than any of the officers, continued to struggle with them. In essence, what they're trying to say is that it's his fault that he died, that it's because he's obese, it's because he's large, it's because he resisted, and we all saw the video. We saw the video of what happened, and guess what? Talking about verifiable facts, the coroner's office said that he died of a chokehold. And, and, and you know, when I, when I learned about this, Mari, I thought, you know, there's so many other ways, because there is a lawsuit against the city of New York and the New York Police Department by the Garner family. There might be more, but at least Eric Garner's family has sued the NYPD. And one other way they could have sort of protected themselves or uh, made it look like it's Eric Garner's fault because this lawsuit is pending, they could have put it on their own site. They could have put, you know, they could have put something in their substations all over the city, but not on uh, Eric Garner's page. Um, It is, I think it's, it's a complete misrepresentation, and I think it's against what Wikipedia is about. It's supposed to be neutral. What do you think? I think it was completely unnecessary for them to do this, and I think this was some stupid move on the part and some call by some publicity team on behalf of the NYPD that decided to start editing this. Did they not think they were going to get caught? And also... Who cares? Are they are they doing this to prove to the entire public, the entire viewing, uh, the entire reading, viewing people on Wikipedia that they didn't do this? You know, if they're going to say, oh, it wasn't a chokehold, then that save that for a time and place for the complaint, for um, the civil case, mm-hmm. save that for their defense. Why be sitting there editing Wikipedia? I just think it was unnecessary, and I think it makes them look foolish. Yeah, it makes them look really bad. It, it just, it was... It was bad. Anyway, um, back in Ferguson, Missouri, two police officers were killed during a protest, and the man who shot these police officers is a 20-year-old man named Jeff, I believe, Williams, uh, who has come forward and confessed to the shooting. The officers survived. They're home. They're recovering. One was shot in the face. One was shot in the shoulders. And Jeff Williams sounds to me like his like he's trying to pursue a defense of self-defense. Um, there's been a lot of interviews with protesters asking whether they've 
ever seen him before. I think, uh, and, and the answer has been no, this is a new phase. We've never seen him at the protests. I think what they're trying to show is that if he, in fact, is a regular at these protests, which are happening all the time in, in Ferguson, then he is doing this in retaliation that he meant to kill, I mean, meant to shoot and possibly kill the police officers. Um, and so uh, what he's trying to say is that, no, I was robbed and I was shooting over at the person that robbed me who was in the crowd. Um, of course, the police officers are not quite believing that. But I think the more that he can remove himself from being a regular at these protests, the more he his defense would be credible and that he may have been attacked. And But, you know, the flip side to that is as a prosecutor, wouldn't you say, well, you're in front of a police station. Why not uh, yell for help if you're being robbed? Why not? I mean, you're right there, you know, amongst officers. Yeah, but like you said, I do think his defense is going to make a big deal, try to take this as far away from the Ferguson protests and as far away from um, the jury thinking this was intentional, this was, um, he meant to kill cops, and he's trying to say, I was robbed, it was a big mob scene with a lot of demonstrators, and um, actually... I do think the defense may be able to do a good job of saying that because several of the demonstrators said they never saw him. Uh, they even did, some of the reporters did Google searches to see if he'd ever been interviewed mm-hmm. at the scene at these Ferguson protests. No one knew of him. It wasn't like he was this big protester who was there every night who had some bone to pick with the police. It very well right. could have been wrong place, wrong time. I think so. I think that they can't tie him to any other events or protests where, they, where it would show that he has a motive. But to- that's why they didn't charge him with anything intentional. They charged him with fire. Right. With firing his weapon, yes. it doesn't doesn't mean that he meant to shoot them. It just means that the that the gun went off and he did and shoot, he did them. shoot so them. So yeah. that defense doesn't even really matter in the end. Right, right. All right, next on the docket, uh, the Boston Marathon bombing trial is is underway, and there have been several um, key witnesses who've testified on Monday and Tuesday of this week. One of them was a Chinese student at Northeastern University whose Mercedes SUV was actually carjacked by Tamar Len Zarniev, who is the deceased brother, the older brother, and the one that is undisputably the mastermind of these bombings. And for those of you who may not remember, the Boston Marathon bombings happened in April of 2000. 2013, where these two brothers allegedly planted bombs at the finish line of the Boston Marathon, killing three people and injuring over 260 people. Very, very serious. They are from Chechnya. They're very fanatic Muslims, and it looks like it's a religious hate crime of sorts. Um, and the second person that testified was the police officer who got the radio call about the carjacked SUV who was patrolling the area and got engaged in an eight-minute brutal, violent, deadly, bloody um, uh, shootout with these brothers. And the third one, to me, was very interesting. It's um, it's a snitch, and it's his name is... Um, I think it's it's uh, Stephen Silva or something. His last name is Silva. He grew up with Zokar, who's the brother, the younger brother on trial, and he's got a deal with the prosecutors on another case of his, and he's testifying against Zokar and, and essentially saying that he um, loaned him his gun. The gun is the same gun used in the carjacking that the Chinese student identifies. It's the same gun that is used in the shootout with the cops. It's tossed at the, at the scene, and it's the same gun that is used to kill the MIT police officer Collier who is shot to death um, by one of these brothers. So um, the the relevance of all this I think ultimately is that the defense um, for Zokar is trying to make him like the puppet little brother mm-hmm. of this mastermind. I, I, the prosecution has never disputed that the older brother was the main guy. He was the main culprit. He was the mastermind behind this. But that doesn't make Zokar any 
less liable. I think the problem here is, is he's charged with 30 counts, 17 of which are, uh, carry the death penalty. So I think the goal uh, for the defense appears to me to be mitigating these charges and possibly getting rid of the death penalty. Um, it, I don't see Zokar walking or seeing the uh, light of day at any time, unfortunately. Um, or the, fortunately. Or fortunately. Um, you know, and I think that um, the evidence is really bad because as much as the defense is saying, oh, he's the little brother who's under pressure by the older brother, I mean, here's the gun in, in three of these events uh, is a gun that he borrowed from his friend and his friend kept asking for the gun back and he kept, kept coming up with excuses why he doesn't want to return the gun. So, um, you know, I think that... Um, this is there's going to be more witnesses. I don't think they're necessarily going to be favorable to Zokar. Um, and of course, we'll report back in the upcoming weeks with updates. I totally agree with you that I think that these um, witnesses hurt the defendant in the defendant's case that, oh, um, the brother was the criminal mastermind. I'm just the little brother. I was his puppet. I was, you know, following his way. He was mm-hmm. the one who called the shots and he was the one who planned this whole thing out. Like you said, one, the problem is, well, Zohar is the one who, um, decide, is the one who got the gun, the gun yeah. that ended up killing Sean Collier, the cop. So how do you explain that? It wasn't mm-hmm. his older brother, Tomerlin's friend. It was his friend who gave them the gun. Second, the witness um, who owned the home and the boat that Zohar was found in, he testified too, and he testified to the note that he scrawled on the boat when he thought he was dying. He scrawled out this note explaining his motive and explaining Mm -hmm. why he did that. When he wrote that, Tomlin was already dead. He was hours dead at that point. And that explains his own state of mind. He was independently thinking the same thoughts as his brother. It wasn't like his brother was saying, go here, do this. He was thinking, I want revenge on the American people. And that's exactly what he wrote on his note, which goes to show he had his own mind. He was thinking for himself. And he is equally as culpable as his brother. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the notes said, stop killing uh, our people. We are one and we will stop. And so you're right. Um, there are photographs of those uh, etchings on the wood slats in the boat as well. But, um, you know, I, I, there was also this extensive cross-examination of the Chinese um, SUV owner uh, by the defense because, mm-hmm. you know, the, the the issue was whether Zokar was the one pointing the gun at any time, whether Zokar did any of the talking during the carjacking to direct him to drive from one point to another. And, of course, he said no. It was all Tamerlan. Um, I hope I'm pronouncing his name. But um, anyway, so so uh, again, I mean, he did help his brother, and there are lots, plenty of evidence of sort of his independent role in this, um, besides what his brother may have uh, asked him to do. Okay, so moving forward to tipping the scales, um, is the criminal justice system failing underage rape victims? Uh, not in California, but in Sweden, um, a 27-year-old man was recently acquitted for the rape of a 13-year-old. In Sweden, apparently, the legal age is 15, and the man put up a defense and was able to prove to the jury that uh, that this 13-year-old, her body was well-developed, so she, you know, I guess her breasts were larger and she had curves or something, and that he had no way of knowing, reasonably knowing, that she was, in fact, under the age of 15. And he's acquitted. And this has obviously raised um, um, havoc amongst child abuse groups uh, all over internationally. In California, we have a strict liability law here. We have statutory rape. And, you know, it it doesn't matter. You're Mm -hmm. either 
a minor under 18 or you're 18 years or older, and there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. It doesn't um, matter what the defendant thought. If the yeah, defendant exactly. thought you looked 21, doesn't matter because you were actually 13. And as defense counsel, you know, I had a guy who was 19 in Orange County. The Orange County DA's office prosecuted him, and he was having sex with a, for the first time, in a car with a 16-year-old, and he actually, because he aspired to be a cop all his life, he went out of his way. And luckily, I had all his Facebook Facebook text messages with this girl. But essentially, he had said, "Where? What school do you go to? What you know?" He, she said, "I'm a sophomore at UCLA." What dorm? I mean, she went to great lengths to lie about her age, and she did look like she was 19, which is the age she said she was. And ultimately. That case could have been prosecuted, but but it's it's the hope that you're going to get a DA that's got some reasonable sensibility who's going to do the right thing because the intent behind these laws was not to protect people that are close in age in high school having sex, for instance. Um, it was intended to protect the young girl who's who's getting abused and used by the old uncle, by the adult that is way older than her. And I see a huge difference between a 40 year old creepy uncle who was molesting his you know 12 year old niece, okay, then, you know, uh, a 19-year-old who just graduated from high school and is having sex with his high school sweetheart who might be under 18. There's a huge difference, and yet the law is blind to that. It is statutory rape. So, um, in locally on this on this issue, in Venice High School, 10 teenage boys between the ages of 14 and 17 were arrested. These They're juveniles, obviously, so this case presents um, as an interesting issue in that the two victims are, are girls that are minors, and the perpetrators are also minors. So we've got the protection that the juvenile system um, offers the uh, offenders, and we've got the general protection that we offer rape victims um, and, and these minors. So um, they've been booked, and uh, the DA's office is looking at filing charges. There's a wide discretion on filing juvenile charges uh, in juvenile court. So um, I'm not sure if charges will be filed, although I think that they will be. Um, it appears to me, because there's this report, Mari, that this was going on since 2013, so it appears to me like there's more going on, and we just don't know yet because mm-hmm. of this investigation. But I think, because they're, they're saying that some of this conduct was consensual, and some of it was coercive. And these girls um, at some point complained about their reputation being ruined because things were being posted, videos and uh, very graphic photographs, etc. And I think that what's going on here is that at some point that girls didn't want this, maybe the parents were seeing it, maybe other friends were seeing it, it and they wanted this to stop and these guys then started you know threatening them we're going to ruin your reputation if you don't continue engaging these acts with us because 2013 to 2015 is a long time for this to go unnoticed in a high school don't you agree i completely agree so i think in the first case in sweden the question is did the justice did the justice system fail an underage rape victim and i say yes the second question here locally in california is did the school system fail these underage rape victims and i say a resounding yes they knew about it probably it was going on or if they didn't know about it they should have known about it they should have known about it and the reason i say that is um a friend of mine this is a disturbing story he um teaches a class a ninth grade lawn society class he comes in once a week and he teaches this class and he 
uh, was, you know, talking about criminal law to these students, and these students mentioned the phrase, run a train. And he said, what's that? What's run a train? And they laughed at him. Oh, my God, you don't know? You don't know what that phrase is? Run a train means that so many guys and so many men sleep with a woman that they all run a train on her and Mm. that there's so much semen inside of her that you can't tell who she slept with. And the fact that these ninth graders even know what this term is, know what this phrase is, and are laughing at people who don't know what this phrase is. This wasn't at Venice High School, but it was at another high school here in Los Angeles. And they knew about it because... In their school as well, these male students had been prosecuted for um, raping this female student, and there was so much semen inside of her that there were so many different types of men that had slept with her, that had run a train on her. And the fact that these students, you know, think it's no big deal uh, is scary. And I think that well, the school only system should be... it's a big deal, but I think a lot of the guys, um, they brag about it. I mean, imagine yeah. these are teenage guys. And, and, and that's, that's some of the things I think the investigators are looking at. They're looking online to see if there's bragging going on by these guys and if there was really consent on the part of the girls because ultimately we go back to you know I think Britney Spears' daughter um, was pregnant by an 18 year old boyfriend and she's 16 you know we're not we don't we can't regulate and bring into court every instance of teens having sex in, in high school it happens all the time every day and it is statutory rape okay but we just got to kind of look away from that because that's not the purpose of the so law. So we can't regulate everyone but when they run a train on one individual when it's one girl and it's eight guys having sex with her that we should prosecute (laughs) absolutely but then you know but here's the thing it it, this is always problematic to me because i handle a lot of sex crimes but if this girl consented yes she's under 18 her consent doesn't matter it's invalid but if these two girls if there's evidence online that they wanted this that they consented to this and it's problematic because this is this goes back to every other high school case where they're sleeping together. I mean, things are happening a lot. I think, I don't know when you were in high school, but things are starting at a much earlier age, I think, these days than it did before. And, um, and, and I think there's a fine line between being able to protect the students, protect the minors who are not consenting and, and you know, not interfering with teen relations. I mean, I think that's... That's one of the issues here. But we're curious to think to find out what you think about this. Um, are our rape laws fair or in need of reform? So please tweet us and tell us what you think. Um, you can tweet me at Azari Law. Tweet me at Mari Fagel. All right. And I think that uh, wraps it up for our segment today. Um, we thank you so much for joining us. And please keep the dialogue going during the week. You can find us on iTunes and YouTube and click like and post your comments. We'd love to hear from you. And we will see you next week right here on Justice is Served. From producers Maria Menunos, Dario Kristen, Tiana Hobson, Kevin Undergaro, and the entire BHL crew, we would like to thank you for supporting Black Hollywood Live, the first online broadcast network dedicated to African-American entertainment. For questions and comments, contact us at info at blackhollywoodlive.com. Like us on Facebook, tweet us, or Instagram us at BHL Online. And I'm your BHL announcer, Scipio. Instagram me at Planet Scipio. Thank you for tuning in. The views expressed here are those of the host only and do not necessarily reflect the views of BHL or its owners or principals.